Hey, um, I, just before we get started, I just want to uh, do a couple of uh, little kind of praise God kind of moments here and and also just remind you, want to remind you about the dinner. If you haven't signed up for the dinner, I know everybody loves to wait to the last minute in case you get a better offer, but um, really uh, want to encourage you to be there on the 27th on the evening. And then also in the morning, we're going to have spirit school with uh, Retha in this room. And I believe the time is nine to two and uh, it's $15, but that includes lunch. So it's a pretty good deal. If you don't have $15, John will pay it. Right, John? John will pay that if you really don't have $15, okay? But the other thing that um, I really wanted to do tonight was just talk about just kind of the cool miracle that happened today. So I know that uh, they kind of did this routine, but if you were a part of the Bible Club today, would you just stand up? Just stand up right now, okay? Okay? Now let me see if I get this right. Um, Whitney, you come up here and tell us what happened, or somebody, one of you three girls, somebody, one of you, okay? So today was uh, the uh, Bible Club at Esperanza High School, and so they had the, had the rush week last week, and today was the first time, so why don't you tell us what happened? Okay, so um, we showed up in, they call him Lopez. No, Mr. Anything. I'll just call him Mr. Lopez. They show, um, like, the kids just started pouring into this room, and I think, Brittany, you got video of it, so you guys can see that soon. But it was roughly, like, it was near to 120 because, um, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, we can <laughs> clap for that because um, Jared got out originally 100 books, and then he had to go to his car and get 20 more. And we only found one left over, so there were roughly, like, 120 kids in there, which it didn't seem like that, but there were kids, like, stuffed under tables, like, sitting on the ground, um, and a lot of them didn't get pizza, but that's okay because they got Jesus, so, <laughs> but we'll be more prepared next time. Um, so, yeah, so next week, we're going to be moving to the gym, so we're really excited for that. Yeah. God is moving in big ways, and so many kids raised their hands this morning, or this afternoon, to accept Jesus into their lives, so that was so awesome. So, yeah. yeah cool. Isn't that great? Yeah, so Jared said about 60% he thought of the kids raised their hands to receive Christ today, so, you know, somewhere, let's just be conservative and say somewhere between 50 and maybe as high as 70 kids got saved today, amen, and that's just one Bible club. Now think about that, you know, and so, you know, when I heard that and I kind of saw that start coming in, I, my first thought was, you know, there's a lot of different kind of miracles God works. We were uh, in staff today and we were talking about, about miracles and, and kind of the future and some of that kind of stuff. And I, and I, and I understand how I say this because I don't, this can come out wrong if, if you don't really follow me right on this. Uh, I, I look forward to the day when people being cured of cancer is a ho-hum moment because God has just so begun to move in us that we begin to see just people healed right and left and we're not just like oh it's so unusual because somebody gets healed we want it to be the norm and not the exception of what God does and at the same time when God does 
uh, when he does his miracle working kind of power, I mean, for the fact that, you know, they were prepared for about 50 kids pizza wise, you know, that's kind of how you prepare how much, how many kids, how many pizzas, that kind of thing. And, you know, to, to see that number go up two and a half times, I mean, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty amazing, you know, what God's doing. And I think it's just the beginning of, of all that's happening. And there's some really significant things happening. I had a, a meeting set up for uh, the ninth, which was a pretty important meeting. And I had to move it to the 16th. And, and it really is a very important meeting for this church, uh, the one I had. But I got a call from, uh, from Todd, and he said, would you be willing to host here at Influence Church on the 9th, and you be the moderator for all the candidates that are running for mayor for Anaheim and for all the candidates who are running for city council? So they're all going to be here, and the whole city's invited Okay, all who want to come, and they're coming to Influence Church, and I'm moderating that event. And, you know, that's no minor miracle, you know. And we've really believed all along that we've had this governmental favor that God has allowed us to have just a special grace with the city, and we really believe we're going to need it for the days ahead for what we envision God wants to do. So uh, just pray for that on the 9th. Pray for the 16th. I'll give you more details on the 16th when I can. And then we have another one, really important meeting tomorrow. Uh, and then we have one for on the, the following day for uh, with the city about um, a meeting at the Grove that we kind of got the whole ball rolling here with um, ISIS um, and what's going on over there and for a humanitarian event for the city that we would uh, really be the 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 instrument behind for humanitarian and, and really kind of what's going on. So, so God is just, uh, you know, it, I quit looking for anything to do. I used to look for, I got a network. I got to meet somebody. Now I try to avoid people. You know, it's like, no, no more stuff, you know, and it's that whole idea. You know, I, I think I shared it with you. I want to keep sharing it with you. When I read in Heidi Baker's uh, newsletter and, and it said, we, we don't pursue revival anymore. It pursues us. And we don't, we don't, it's just God is pursuing us in some pretty amazing ways that we don't have to look for something to do. You know, just wait, the Spirit of God will bring them to you. And I think sometimes it's, it's a great principle of truth um, that's in Scripture. It's also found in a book uh, by Henry Blackaby that I think Tammy's talked about wanting to, to lead uh, through here, uh, School of Ministry sometime. But it's the idea is don't, um, don't do something and ask God to bless you. Find out what God is doing and join him. You know, so many times we, we get something in our head that's what we should do. But sometimes, you know, you see God's working over here. Look at, you know, you know I think about these Bible clubs. God's working already in, with Jared and Lucinda. You know, let's just join with what they're doing and learn from them and, and whatever favors on them. We want, it, we want a spillover, you know. And that's kind of the, the chapter 5, I believe, you know, about we need to let miracles be our tutor. And we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. But uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and begin with a prayer. I'm going to start. I'm going to have uh, Nathan come and share part of uh, a little bit of this uh, ch- uh, chapter 5 with you tonight. And then we'll jump into the other book uh, after the break. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you tonight that we can study the Word of God, that you can um, just powerfully and mightily speak to us through your Word. And we pray, God, that you might uh, be our teacher and might be our leader and might be our power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, let's, uh, let's take our Bibles, if you will, and open to the book of Hebrews in the fourth chapter. This is a passage that we have looked at numerous times before in this study, and it will never cease to amaze you as uh, the depth that you can find in just one passage. When I was in college, I went to a Christian college after I got saved, and we had a guy come and do a revival. And he was there every night for seven nights, and every night he preached on exactly the same passage of Scripture, John 3.16. And every night it was a different message on John 3.16. Sometimes you think, oh, yeah, I know that verse. But part of the truth that we're going to learn tonight, part of the, what you've studied, is how the Spirit of God, when, when that outer man is broken, it releases that inner man to really be able to see, see the Word of God in a powerful way and understand it in a, in a new depth. So take your Bibles, let's look to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, and it says this, for the Word of God is living powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So if you're taking notes, I want you just to see this sevenfold ministry that God lays out for us, all right? Sevenfold ministry. I'm going to give you a list of seven things. It's right there in the text before you. But notice what it says, that first of all, that this ministry is of the Word of God. It is of the Word of God. So number one is the Word of God. Number two, it is living. It is living. So this Word is something that has a life nature all of its own. It possesses life. The Word of God possesses life. And it goes forth, and it has an effect. Remember when uh, Isaiah said, my Word will go forth, and it will accomplish what I intended to accomplish. So it has life. My words are spirit and they are truth. So when Jesus was speaking, he was saying, my words, the word of God is powerful. There's a whole chapter in the Bible that's dedicated to the word of God. It's Psalm 119. It's the longest, psalm, it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And every, every single verse, now watch this, every single verse is a reference to the Word of God. Sometimes it's called the statutes of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the Word of the Lord, the testimonies of the Lord, but every single verse in, every, in, in that entire chapter is dedicated to the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God is powerful. And when it gets in you, it has a life all of its own. It begins to take on the nature of God inside of you because it is God's breath. So it says here that it's living, and it's now it's also powerful. So number three, it's powerful. So what is the Word of God? It is, first of all, it is the Word of God. It is, number two, living. Number three, it is powerful. So this is not something that's kind of... Uh, you know, just uh, just a nice thing to have, nice something that's comforting, something that can give you some wisdom. No, it is power. It's living, but it has power. It's almost like it's this intrinsic power that does not rely on anything else because it's God. Thy word, O Lord, the, the Scripture says, is fixed in the heavens and is eternal. See, the word of God is powerful. It never goes away. You'll never cease to need the word of God. 
It's in the heavens. It's fixed. It's eternal. Isaiah said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, listen to this now, it abides forever. Forever. It never stops. Never stops. You think you get to heaven, you're saved, you get to heaven, you know, okay, you go through the great white throne judgment, you make it through all the, all the jump, jump through all the hoops, everything God's got for you, and you don't need the word of God. No, you need it more than ever. More than ever you need it. You see, don't get the idea you go to heaven, you sit around, you strum a harp, and all's cool. You just sit around and fish all day. You know, I know that's some of you fishermen, that's a, that would be heaven. Maybe God will let you fish, I'm not sure. Just try to catch an eternal fish, though. Okay? They're up to your bait. They know all about you. But think about this. So, so... God has a purpose and a plan in eternity that is greater than any purpose you have here on earth. You see, what drives every one of you is a purpose. And that purpose says, this is why I exist. I get fulfillment from this. I love doing this. You might find your purpose in something like helping people. Well, that's a purpose. It's meaningful. It's powerful. Well, you're going to have a purpose that's greater than any purpose, whether it's teaching school, being a doctor, being a nurse, being an attorney, being a servant of the Lord, being a helper, whatever it is, your purpose is going to be greater there and your need for understanding the mind of God will be greater there than it ever will be here. And there's something wrong with a theology that says something like this, well, um, death will cure what I couldn't do in time. In other words, you don't want to see as the, the great solver of all your problems is death and eternity, is heaven. No, no, that just ends one state of living and takes you to another state of living that's higher and far more noble. So it tells us here it's powerful, and then it tells us, so we can use that word here, um, it also has the idea of it's sharper or it's effective. It's sharper. It's sharp. So it's effective. If somebody's sharp, you say, hey, he's a real sharp person. You mean, boy, they're smart or they, they get it, right? Or they're effective. Well, the word of God is effective in your life. When it gets down inside of you, you see it's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Find the sharpest, best sword you can find. It's sharper than that because it goes beyond the natural. It goes into the, uh, the spiritual and the supernatural. Okay, now notice what it does piercing so it's effective the word of god is effective it's piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit so that word division there is your next word and that it is regenerative it regenerates because see what what the word of god has to do in order to bring life it has to bring a division between your soul and and your spirit. Now let's review for just a moment. When God created you, he created you body, soul, and spirit. The problem is man's sin and his human spirit, let's just call that the little s. Holy Spirit will be the big S, all right? The little s died. It became insensitive to the spirit of God. So what happened was, while that kind of, let's just say, kind of curled up and died, the soulish part of man ballooned. It became dominant. 
So in your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions, those became the drivers in your life. And everything in your life went around, what do I think, how do I feel, and what do I want to do? And it was not subject to the law of God. In fact, it could not be subject to the law of God because it was dead. So what happens at salvation, your spirit is birthed alive by the Holy Spirit. And so when it becomes alive, guess what? Now it's able to respond to the things of God. It's sensitive to the things of God. So when you read the Word of God, you go, I may not understand all of it, but I understand some of it now. I begin to see with my spiritual eyes. Paul talks about the eyes of our heart being enlightened so that we can see the hope of our calling. All right? So we we understand that it's the division of the soul and spirit, and it is a discerner. So here's here's the seventh one. It is revealing. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So what happens when the Word of God gets inside of you? If you allow it to, what it will do is it will tell you what you're really up to, what you're really thinking about. It'll show you the kind of person you are not and point you in the direction of the kind of person you should be. It's a discerner. And without that word of God, what, how, what becomes your discerner? My mind, my will, and my emotions. What do I think about me? What do I want to do? And how does it feel? Okay? Now, take your Bible. Let's go just a little bit further here. Let's go to... Um, let, let me just take you over here for a minute. I wasn't going to do this, but I think I will. Go to um, Hebrews. We're going to stay in Hebrews for a minute, if you can. Hold on, where is this? Go to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12. Hebrews 5 and verse 12. Okay? Now, the book of Hebrews is written to who? Hebrews, bunch of Jews, right? That's why when you read the book of Hebrews, it's got all this Old Testament stuff in it. Talking about priests, it's talking about offerings, it's talking about all of this kind of deal because it's, it's written to Jewish believers to help to, them to understand. Now notice what he says here in verse 12. For by this time you ought to be teachers. In other words, you've been a Christian long enough. What are you waiting for? Just one more class right? Just one more class, one more lesson. Wait till I'm ready. By this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. For you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now, this is a really sad situation. They had started to get solid food. They were chewing steak, And instead of moving on in their spiritual life, what did they do? They regressed. Now imagine imagine this scenario. I'm going to assume everybody in here started with a bottle or a breast. Good assumption? Then you got to progress to that pre-chewed food, right? Baby food. And then before long, I think he, oh, he's getting hungry. I think he's ready for solid food, right? I'm going to start giving him a little bit more. I need a little bit more substance there because why? It's not sustaining. And how does the baby react when he's hungry and he's not sustained? Just like you. Just like you do when you don't get enough of the Word of God. 
you start becoming a soulish man. You start functioning with your mind, your will, and your emotions. You complain about everything. You're upset about everything. You're mad at people. You're easily offended. All of those things. You're just like a child. And nobody can reason with you. Just like you cannot reason with a child. You sit down with a child. He's hungry. He's yelling. Now listen. Now listen here. I know you're only a year and a half old. But I want you to focus here. Focus. There will come a time when you'll get to eat. See my clock? Give it four hours, you'll be fine. And what's the baby going to do? Scream at you, spit at you, yell, do anything in the world. Why? Because they're functioning, you see, based on a need that they have. When you don't get enough of the Word of God in you, you function just like that. You just have an adult manner about you. Does that make sense? When you're acting like that, you know what you Here's the first thing you say. I need the Word of God. That's what you say. I need the word of God in me. I don't have enough of it because guess what? It's a discerner of the soul and the spirit, right? It shows you the, the true intentions of your heart. So it says by this time you need, you need to have milk. You're going back to milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness for he is a babe. I mean, it's a sad indictment when you're, when, you, when you're, you know, 90 years old and still eating baby food, spiritually speaking. But solid food belongs, now watch this, to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So what does the Word of God do? What it does is it trains you up in righteousness, you're able to understand when you have enough of the Word of God coming in, you're, you're able to see the difference between good and bad, between evil and, and righteousness, because your senses, your spiritual senses have been trained, right? You ever lifted weights? You ever ran? You ever did anything kind of like that? And you say, you know, at first you started out, you could only do five push-ups. And then, you know, you kept working, then you could do seven, you could do 10, 15, 20, 100 push-ups, whatever it was, Right? What happened? You trained your physical body for more endurance. Spiritually, you have to do exactly the same thing. You have to train your spiritual self in the Word of God. Now, go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And look at verses 14 through 21. Now, we're focused here on the inner man. On the inner man. Okay, so the inner man, we want to we wanna have that inner man, the spirit man, strengthened, right? And I'm going to show you some benefits of that here in just a second. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family of heaven on earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might, through his spirit, and what's it say? In the inner man. So your inner man, your spirit man, can be strengthened. Not just turned alive, turned on, but strengthened. So watch this. It's possible to possess a weak spirit, human spirit, although you have God's spirit in you. Else he wouldn't say be strengthened, the inner man is strengthened. You see that? 
Okay, let's just read on a little bit here. Verse 17, and Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, the length, the depth, um, and to know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations. You can quote a scripture and not have a clue what it means. I, I'm, I, I've done that. Haven't you done that? You've quoted a scripture and then somewhere down the road you go, is that what that means? I mean, I've had those moments. I think I told you a week or two ago a story of, you know, that whole idea of what I bind in heaven and bound on earth. And I, I've been binding stuff or at least thought I was binding a bunch of stuff for years. I didn't have a clue. Didn't have a clue what it meant. I can quote Ephesians 3.20 all I want and not understand it because I understand it in my soulish man. My mind can memorize it, right? But I don't understand it. So what we want to try to do in this process, and, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit more here tonight, but let me give you a couple of things. So what is a strong spirit, your spirit, not the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's always strong. Your spirit, when your spirit is strong, what's the end result? Well, number, num- the first thing is you will not lack power. You will not lack power. You ever, um, you ever blown up a balloon? You know those little cheap balloons you get for birthdays? They're like a nightmare. Everybody gets TMJ just from blowing them up. You know, you blow it up and you, dang, I'm hurting. You know, my jaw's hurting, all that. You know, and you, you blow it up and blow it up and that it gets so thin, you got to blow it up really big, and then you turn it loose. The more air that's in it, the faster it moves. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed the next time you blow it up, is it easier or harder? It's easier because it's what? Stretched. Your spirit gets stretched. It's easier for the Spirit of God to move in you and to fill you and to give you more power every time you blow it up and expand it beyond its normal capacity. So what you want to do is you want to keep pushing, you see, you want to keep pushing the human spirit by God's Spirit, by the inner man being strengthened so you don't lack power. It also, when your inner spirit is strengthened, you can persevere in prayer, whereas before you couldn't. A really easy mark of someone who has a weak spirit is a comment like this. Well, I tried that and it didn't work. I prayed and God didn't do anything. That tells you one of two things. Number one, they're not saved. Okay? But I think most cases, it's they're Christians, but they're their spirit is so weak that they don't have any perseverance. They don't understand this principle that, hey, if God said it, I'm just hanging with him until it comes through. That's an inner spirit. That's a, an expansion that comes uh, in, in, in that whole process. Also, uh, we, we understand spiritual warfare in a different dimension. We're able to war in the spirit realm 
in ways that we were not able to before because our spirit is strengthened. See, what happens is when, when our spirit is not strong, we start warring with the, the mind, the will, and the emotions. I'm just mad at Satan. Well, you can be mad all you want, but he's still got you. Well, I'm just not going to let him get the best of me. See there? That sounds really spiritually bold, doesn't it? That's a soulish man. The will. Okay? Well, I figured it out. I'm not going to, you know, I know what God's uh, got, got who God is and, and who Satan is. Okay, that's the mind. All we have to do is release the spirit. See, when the spirit, when the, when the outer man is broken, the spirit of man and the spirit, Holy Spirit of God in us is free to move. It just knocks everything out of the way. When the inner man is strong, here's another benefit, you're not easily offended. See, people that are highly offendable are people with a weak spirit. Well, I just don't know why they don't do that. I don't know why they're doing that. Da, 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 da. Well, the real question is, why do you do that? Because your inner spirit's weak. And then there's a yieldedness to the Holy Spirit that is simple. I just allow the Holy Spirit to work. Because why? Because I'm not trying to do it through this this functionality of, of mind, will, and emotions, which is very powerful and very needed and created by God, but not useful in the spiritual realm if we have to filter everything through that, and that colors all that we do in the spiritual realm. You see how that works? So when you look at this, these uh, first couple of, of pages, and I'm just really covering the first two or three pages here, the illustration that, that Watchman gives in this is that what Jesus did was he was the unrestricted fullness of the life of God. I think about that thought. The unrestricted fullness of the life of God. And what did he give to the church? That commission. You're to be the unrestricted fullness of the life of God. I don't know if that hits you, but that, that's kind of powerful. You know, we're not just, you know, people are trying to get through the day. No, we're the unrestricted. And then if you, if you think about it, look, if you look on page 56, and I have the right book now, by the way. I had to upgrade from the 1974 version to the year 2000, so I guess things changed in 26 years. I didn't, but it did. But um, look what it says here. It says, think of the church's tremendous responsibility. It's in the middle of the uh, first new paragraph. Think of the church's tremendous responsibility. God's commitment to the church is like his previous commitment without reservation or restriction. Restriction To the one man Christ, however, the church may restrict God's work or limit his manifestation. Jesus of Nazareth was God himself. His whole being from within to without revealed God. And here's what he's trying to get. Here's the message he's trying to get to us. So you shouldn't restrict God. And the outer man can restrict God. And that's what we're trying to prevent here. Um, go to page 57, top of the page, first new paragraph. 
And it says uh, in about the third line there, it says, what God expects today is the same power may remain intact as he resides in the church. God should be as free in manifesting himself in the church as he was in Christ. The hindrance in each of us constitutes a hindrance to God. God chooses to restrict his power through us. He chooses to work through us. If I was God, I wouldn't rely on such a group. Would you? I mean, I wouldn't be picking me. I don't know if he'd be picking you, but I wouldn't be picking me. And yet, look what he did. He got 12 guys together who were disqualified for everything that he was about to do. And that was why he called them. He didn't look for the most clever. He didn't look for the brightest. didn't look for the most powerful. didn't look for the, for the ones that had the, the greatest position in life. He found people that there could be no explanation of what they did except by God in them. And when God became unrestricted in them, then they could reach the entire world. Amen? All right. Hey, we're going to look into um, reading the Bible, breaking God's way. So I'm going to have Nathan come. Would you give him a round of applause? Give him a little... If you've seen the movie Space Chimps, can you please raise your hand? Man, Space Chimps is by far the worst movie I have ever seen. The 80-minute film is uh, is about space or monkeys that go to space, chimps that go to space, and uh, it's nothing short of, in my opinion, a, a huge waste of time and torture, um, a torturous waste of time. But you might be wondering, well, then why did you sit through the movie? Why did you actually stay and watch the entire thing? And mostly it was because I was responsible for some kids. They're in my care. And so they were watching the movie. Thus, I had to watch the movie as well. And uh, it was so bad that I tried everything in my, with everything in my power to stay awake through it. But I had a couple of uh, cat naps that were great in the middle of it, despite the movie. Now, why do I open up with that story? I do it to prove a point. Because what you could actually do is you could take what I just said, that entire monologue, and you could break it down. You could atomize it into these little pieces, and you could create this sentence out of it. Space Chimps is a great movie, quote Nathan Roberts. Now, that's not at all what I said, but I did say those words in that order. But you knowing the context of what I was saying, you know that I was trying to communicate something entirely different. Here's another example. Because right now what I'm trying to get at is the idea that context is king. K-I-N-G. Context is king when reading the Bible. We're going to look at Nee's work and, and what he has to say about that as well. But here's another example. If you found a love letter that was written by your father to your mother, and whether you're male or female, if you got a hold of this letter and you read it and thought, oh, my dad loves me in such a weird way. This is creepy, dad. Um, obviously, the letter was not intended for you. The letter was intended to reach your mother. Now, there might be things that we can take out of these love letters from our parents and, and apply it to our lives. But if we wanted to really understand why dad was writing the things that he was writing in this letter, what we'd really have to do is understand the context and the fact that he was writing it to his wife and that it was meant to be uh, something of adoration. This is, uh, what I'm talking about here is, is this idea of the, 
reader response criticism versus authorial intent or what's called new criticism. And you might be familiar with this. It's the idea, though, that it is actually it's a popular notion in, um, in, in certain circles, but that you can read a book and you can interpret it however you want because you're the reader and it's up to you. So that's the reader, um, the reader response criticism. Now, there's a lot of problems with that, just even on the surface, because if we were to try to take Nee's book, for example, and read it however we wanted, we would probably misread what he intended. We would, we would neglect the authorial intent of the book. And we want to uh, be careful when we read the Bible as well to make sure that we're reading the Bible with the same authorial intent, not with a reader response criticism where we just fragment it and take out the things that sound good to us, but that we really understand it in, in accordance with the way that it was originally written, the audience that it was first written to, and what God really intended to communicate. So here's some fun quotes that we can take out of context in our world. Um, if I were to say I'm going to shoot a couple this weekend, you would probably think I'm a cold-blooded murderer. Um, but if I was a photographer, it would mean that I was going to take pictures of a couple. Okay, So no, I'm not a cold-blooded murderer, nor am I a photographer, so I won't be shooting anybody this weekend. Um, another quote. Take your time. If we don't understand that that's said sarcastically, like as in hurry up, then we'll be like, oh, sweet, you're so nice. I'm going to take all the time I want now. So take your time is another thing we can take out of context. Um, I think about, I'll, I'll think about that when somebody shares something with you and you're like, you're just blowing them off. Yeah, yeah, I'll think about that. Or in the Christian world, yeah, let me pray about that. I'll pray about that. That's one of the ones that we like to use too. Uh, it doesn't typically, well, Hopefully it'll mean this for most of you, but it doesn't necessarily always mean, yeah, I'm actually going to go home and diligently pray through that. It's almost more of a cliche that we just throw out there um, to get out of something. Here's some other fun sayings. I took the liberty of checking out some, uh, some of what the Brits say. So these are from the BBC America. And when the British people say, when the Brits say, sorry, what we hear as Americans is, I sincerely apologize. But from a British perspective, this is what they say. Saying sorry is like a national tick, which means that we Brits rarely use the words to convey a heartfelt apology. This is baffling to Americans who will, on occasion, reply with something like, why exactly are you sorry? I'm not, you'll say, confused. Sorry. Uh, an- another one, if a Brit says, I went to public school, we as Americans here, I went to a school my parents didn't pay for. And here's what the Brits say. Americans with a snobbish bent will lap up tales of posh British schooling. However, your use of the word public may as well be throwing them off. Begin by explaining that in the UK, public school is the same as private school. Or decide not to have this conversation in the first place because it'll make you sound like a twit. So if we don't understand British culture, when they say things, we're not going to be able to understand what it is really that they mean. So go ahead and open up to page 57 with me in Release of the Spirit. Here's what Nee has to say. Bottom of the page into reading the Bible starts with how often. How often man in his conceit hangs on to his unrenewed and confused mind by which he reads the Bible. The consequence of this is nothing but his own thought. He does not touch the spirit of the Holy Scriptures. Go and flip over. The first full paragraph. There are at least two basic requirements for reading the Bible. First, our thought must enter into the thought of the Bible. So he's not saying here, turn off your brain. He's saying here, no, you've got to think, but you've got to think from a biblical perspective. 
And uh, continuing on, and second, our spirit must enter into the spirit of the Bible. You must think as the writer, whether it be Paul, Peter, or John, when he had written God's word. So firstly, your thought must begin with where his thoughts begin and develop as his develops. You must be able to reason as he reasons and, and to exhort as he exhorts. In other words, your thought must be geared to his thought. This will allow the Holy Spirit to give you the precise meaning of the scripture. Think of a person coming to the Bible with his mind already set. He reads the Bible to get support for his preconceived doctrines. How tragic. An experienced person, after hearing such a one speak for five or ten minutes, can discern whether the speaker is using the Bible to his own end or has, in, uh, has his deliberation integrated into the thought of the Bible. There is a range difference here. One may stand up and give a pleasing and seemingly scriptural message, but actually his thought is inconsistent with the thought of the Bible. These are what a lot of our cult groups are. Or we may hear someone preach wherein his thought expresses the thought of the Bible and is therefore harmonious and united with it. So again, what, what Nee is not suggesting here is, okay, when you go to the Bible, just shut off your mind. What he's actually saying is, no, we've got to think the Bible in, in the biblical context, in a biblical way. Now, this is called, the fancy word for it is hermeneutics, which means Bible reading methods. It's the way that we approach scripture. So, Based upon these words here, I'm going to give you a little crash course on that, just a little taste of it. And in order to do that, we're going to look at a verse that many of us, probably all of us actually in this room know and are familiar with, which is Jeremiah 29.11. You could probably quote it with me, but it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future. Um, or plans to prosper you, not to harm you as well. It's in there. Now, we Christians love to take this verse and hold it on tight to our chest and say, mm, this is so comforting. Thank you, Lord, for this verse. You have good things planned for me. You have uh, only good things planned for me. And um, th- these are plans to prosper me. And, and all things are going to go well in my life now. Thank you, Lord. Now, what we want to do, though, is not just atomize the text and say, ooh, this sounds good. This, this is comforting to my Christian life. What we want to do is actually look back at the scripture first to see, well, who's God talking to? That's what we want to identify. And it's really easy to do that. We just have to go to verse 1 of this chapter, actually. And so open up with me to Jeremiah 29 on your Bibles. And we're going to look at verse 1. I am reading the NIV, so if you have a different translation, that'll throw you off a little bit. But here's what we read in verse 1. When you're there, say, got it. Awesome. Okay, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So think back to that example I gave earlier about your father writing a love letter to your mother. As we're reading this, who, we, want, we want to ask that same question, okay, who is this being written to? And this is being written to the elders who have been exiled as a part of the Babylonian captivity. And so what we want to do then is now that we know that, now that we have that in our mind, we want to read the rest of it from that same perspective. So let's jump ahead to verse 5. It says, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. 
because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they have or encourage them to have them. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promises to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. What we can oftentimes do when we have verses like this that are common to us is when we get to that spot, our brain kind of shuts off for a second. And we read it and we go, oh, yeah, I love that verse. And then we jump back into the text. And it's almost like we just omit it entirely. And so we really want to read it and understand it within the context that it's originally written. And then we can learn how to apply it to our lives. So what does this mean for the 21st century American Christian? I think that what it means for us is that when we do face trial and tribulation, to whatever degree that is, whether that is um, what the Christians are going through with the, the ISIS terrorism, or if it's here your coworkers making fun of you because you read your Bible at lunch, that there's this promise, there's this hope, there is this peace, that in the midst of trial and tribulation, just like what was going on here with the Israelites, here they are in Babylonian captivity, they're going through this trial and this tribulation, So in whatever trials and tribulations we go through, we can also take the same hope and peace that Israel was given and say, yeah, God, you do have have my best in mind for me. You do have plans to prosper me. Right now, I might be going through something, a trial. I might be being persecuted. But this is for your glory and ultimately for my glory as well. Let's go ahead and um, look at page 59 now. We're going to see what else Ni has to say about this. Specifically, the second idea of of entering into the spirit of the Bible. So about halfway down that first paragraph, it says, When one of the writers, whether Peter, John, Matthew, or Mark, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, not only does his renewed mind follow the inspired thought, but also his spirit is released along with the Holy Spirit. The world cannot understand that there is a spirit in God's word and that this spirit can be released through our spirit, just as it was manifested in the ministry of the prophet. And jump down, uh, second paragraph there. Thus, it is only when your human spirit is released and can touch the spirit of the Bible that you can understand what the Bible has to say. So 1 Corinthians 2, if you want to flip over there. What's going on, um, and we're going to start in verse 12. But what's going on here in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians is Paul is addressing this division in the church. He says, some of you say that you follow um, Paul, some that, is, that you follow Apollos. Um, some that you say that you follow Cephas or Peter, some that you say that you follow Christ. And he asked this question, was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into my name? No. The, the idea here is you're creating divisions for yourself according to your favorite teacher when really your identity and who you are needs to be associated directly and only with Christ. And what he, he goes on to say here, let's read in verse 12 of chapter 2. He says, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by us, or taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness 
and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not merely is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What Paul is really trying to get at here is, look, you Corinthians, you didn't believe the gospel because I came to you with eloquent speech. You didn't believe because I presented the gospel to you, packaged it up nicely, made it so that you could really understand it, preached it to you in a coherent way. Though, yes, Paul was a master communicator, so you can guarantee that he was going to do that. But what he says is, I came and I preached Christ crucified. That's all I was concerned with doing. And what he says here, especially in verse 14, is that discernment of anything spiritual is going to come through the Holy Spirit. Now, for us, that means that when we open up the Word of God, just like what Watchman Nee is saying, when we open up the Word, it's the Holy Spirit who's teaching us. And really, he has to be the one who communicates through, through the Holy Spirit to our spirit what the text is saying, what the Bible is saying. And so the Bible, Bible reading then is, is an experience in itself of opening actually our heart to the Holy Spirit, opening our spirit to the Holy Spirit to say, come and teach me right now as I read because I want to see this. I want to understand what this actually means, not just comprehend it with my mind, but really have it be something that takes place, takes root in my heart. Um, and 2 Timothy 3, you don't have to go there, you can just write it down, but 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And the reason why is because, really this is the idea that Watchman talks about at the end of uh, page 59. He says, If our outward man has been broken, our human spirit is released and can thereby touch the loving, hopeful, and helpful inspiration of the spirit contained in the scriptures. The Spirit of God is looking to, to teach us. He's looking to console us. He's looking to love us. He's looking for us to experience the Father's love and grace through the Word. So here are the main ideas that really Nee covers and that we've covered in this section. We often atomize Scripture. That is, we break it down into tiny fragments. We, we, kinda t- we take it out of its original context. We make it say something else. So we don't want to do that. Context is king. We've got to remember that when we approach the word. The Bible is really not just a collection of quotes for us to take out, pluck out, and apply to our lives when we need it the most, though it can console us in that way. But it's an entire coherent narrative. It's God's story, and we want to make sure that we read it with that in mind. It's not something to be viewed as merely as a source of consumption to take away the bitterness of life and make it more palatable. It's not like cream and sugar that we add to our coffee so that it goes down smoother. The Word of God can ultimately, spiritually, only really be discerned through the Holy Spirit. Now, you've heard us talk about this Bible reading retreat. I've cut it down one day. It was five days. So um, we are now only going to be reading through the Old Testament. We're going we're gonna, to um, be able to do that, hopefully, um, but over the, the course of those five days. And we're going to pass these out to you guys so you have the information. But we really want to push this retreat. It's $70 that includes um, transportation and food. You're, you're going to be responsible to pay for um, two meals But in addition to that. But it's only 70 bucks. It's an entire week at a killer cabin at the, ter- the uh, Randy and Teresa Adams cabin up there in Wrightwood. And not only that, but it's worth three credits for school and ministry. So you can knock out three credits. That's an entire class worth of six weeks in four days. Um, 
And like what we're talking about here, you're going to see the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, in its context. You're going to get to these verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, and you're going to see, oh, wow, I never knew that that's what it actually was referring to. That's so eye-opening for me. That's so life-giving for me now as I read the text. And what I believe, too, is that as we open to the Lord, as we open to the Spirit's work, as we read through the Bible, that he's just going to minister to us and bless us in immense ways. To read his entire, Israel's entire narrative and to see how God is loving them and being gracious to them all throughout and setting us up for Jesus is going to be an incredible, incredible experience. So if you can take time off work, away from your family, then um, we really want to stress that and encourage you to come. It's going to be an incredible experience. It will be intense, but it's going to be incredibly transformational, I believe, as well. So you can sign up for that in the lobby. You can also email me, Nathan at InfluenceChurch.org, if you're interested in that. I'm going to hand it back over to Phil. Sorry, the dates. Yes, October 14th through 17th. So it's a Tuesday through Friday. Um, I think Tammy's going to mention it, but she has a class the following day on that Saturday as well on the mystics. So, um, if you do the Bible reading retreat, I want to give a plug for her class as well, because coming out of reading the Bible and then jumping into a class on the mystics is going to be so rich. So you're going to, you're going to want to be a part of both of these things. All right. Let me, uh, let me finish the knee book. Uh, before we take a break, um, this idea of brokenness is um, is what knee's all about. That if we don't, if we function as we normally function as human beings, as Christian human beings, we miss it. We just miss it altogether. Because it, it becomes it becomes more you know, more mind, will and emotions than it does spirit man. So as we take a look at this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna have you open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter four, and I'll get to that in just a second. Because it's a it's a great illustration of uh, let's call it the other side of the coin of what um what Nathan was talking about in terms of Scripture and how God speaks. Um, both consistent, both true, both aligned up with the heart and the mind of God. So ministering the Word of God. How do I minister the Word of God to people? One of the mistakes I made really early was I knew a lot of Scripture. Really knew a lot. And I had a pretty good memory so I could kick out a lot of Scripture but I was kicking it out of a hard shell and not a broken shell. And until that shell is broken, that ministry of the spirit, my spirit empowered by his spirit doesn't happen. doesn't happen at all. It, it touches the mind, but it doesn't touch the spirit of man. So when he talks here about um, ministering the word on page 60, you can have in your heart something that God has very clearly told you, and it's very true. God's Spirit has put it inside your spirit. It's there. You know it. You, you just know you want to release it to somebody, and you try to release it, but when you try to release it, the burden is still there to release it. 
And somehow you, you feel like you said all the right things, did all the right stuff, but it didn't have an effect on the people. And it didn't feel like it was doing what it needed to do in you. And so even after, you know, maybe ministering the word of God or trying to give someone a scripture, you think, I just didn't, you ever had these things where you just, I just, I felt like I didn't really say it. Ever had that? I mean, I've had that happen. And what Nee is telling us here is it's not your ability to communicate or articulate. It's the fact that the spirit man, your spirit was not broken. And so it never became this life-flowing spirit to people. So what they encountered was they, were, they really encountered you. And you're nice and you're good and you're helpful and you're smart and you, you're, you can articulate something, but they don't encounter him. Remember, all school of ministry is about is about people encountering God. Not about you knowing an answer. Because if you want an answer, you just go online. There's answers everywhere you go. So when the outer man is not broken, then we don't really experience that power. And the inner man is not released. And then he also talks about that life, you know, doesn't flow smoothly. You ever had those times where you just felt like it was like easy to talk about Jesus? And maybe you said exactly the same things in another context, but it was harder to talk about Jesus. And the effect was totally different. It's because the outer man. It's hard. Hard for a lot of reasons. Hard because you already know the answers. I know the answer. I know that scripture so well. I've got scriptures that I know so well that I can quote them in English or in Greek. And yet, I may not know what they mean. Does that make sense? Because it's still, it's still soulish man functioning instead of spiritual man functioning. And then he comes to this, this idea on page 61 on the preaching of the gospel. And, and by the way, don't at all think this is, the context of this is, you know, what pastors, evangelists do. This is what believers do. When we talk about school of the ministry, we mean all of you are ministers. Would that we had a church full of ministers, everyone ministering the word of God. So when we talk about the preaching of the gospel, um, remember, it's, it's kind of two things. Number one, it's only good news if people who need it hear it, right? It's not good news if you've never heard it, first of all. But it's also not good news if it doesn't somehow have an effect on them in the sense that it, it didn't, didn't come with power. So Paul said to the Corinthians, I, I came to you not with eloquent words of wisdom as man speaks, but I came to you in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Later he will say to them, to my shame I was too weak, but you gladly bear up with those who take advantage of you and even strike you in the face. He talked about those who exercise this strong-handed spiritual abuse. He said, you put up with people like that. And then he was a little tongue-in-cheek saying, but to my shame, I was too weak for that. In other words, I chose not to exercise my strength in my soulish man, but rather to allow the spirit and power to be demonstrated in and among you.
so when we talk about this preaching of the word, the, the end result is we, the divine spirit that is in us must touch the human spirit that is in someone else or we haven't really accomplished what God intended. And I, sometimes I don't even know what's keeping it. You ever had those feelings? I don't know. How am I hindering the spirit of God? And that's, that's something that just has to come through, you know, personal examination and revelation of God um, and let God speak to you. Um, on page 62, uh, this is the way to preach the gospel. It says, um, whenever you sense you should give someone the gospel, but you allow your spirit to be released. So the outward man must be broken so that the inner man can be released. And actually then what's happening is God is just flowing through you. You ever read uh, the prophets when it says, and the word of the Lord came to Habakkuk, right? Or uh, in the King James, it uses the word, the oracle of God that was revealed to Habakkuk. The word oracle was a Hebrew word that meant to put your ear to the mouth of God. And the idea was, when you opened your mouth, you weren't speaking. It was God speaking through your ear and out your mouth. That was an oracle, the oracle of God. That there was was no restriction in the process, just divine flow coming all the time. And that's why when they came in, thus says the word of the Lord, and everybody ran for cover because they said, most prophets have a bad word. I'm getting out of Dodge, right? And false prophets got stoned, so, you know, you didn't want to just kind of make up a bunch of cool stuff. You know, God spoke to me, and this is what he said. You know, that wasn't wise. Um, So salvation really comes to someone when somehow their spirit is touched by the spirit of God that is in us. See, he's made us agents of reconciliation. You know what that means? It means we're the ones he gets to use. I mean, how many people do you know got saved because they heard a divine voice of God from heaven saying, be saved? I haven't met anybody. I'm sure there is somebody. I just haven't met them. The ones I've met have been somehow they either picked up the word of God and that got to them or somebody said, here, here's, here's the word of God. Read this, see what God has to say. And they got saved. In other words, God used the instrument of the word of God or used you or a combination of the two to get them saved. So see how, how, how much weight God puts on you to do that? So now think about this. Let's go to Hebrew, uh, Matthew chapter 4. And in, in Matthew 3, right before this, Jesus is coming and John's baptizing. Thus John the baptizer, right? John's baptizing, and here he sees Jesus coming, and all of us, and he's able to discern. He knows the difference. He sees a bunch of Pharisees coming, and he says, "Uh, hey, you brood of vipers. John was not politically correct. That's why we like him, right? I mean, the dude had some, some, some crazy clothes, you know, and came out eating locust, wild honey. He's wearing a bunch of, you know, just stuff that's totally upstream in the fashion world, and, um, and he comes out, and then John sees, he sees these Pharisees, says, you brood of vipers, what? who warned you of the wrath to come? Bring first uh, fruits uh, bearing repentance, and then I'll baptize you. And then he discerned, he sees Jesus. And he instantly, he says, you know, I, I can't baptize you. Why don't you baptize me? And Jesus says, don't forbid it, John, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness.
Why was Jesus baptized? Well, he said to fulfill all righteousness. There couldn't be a release of his righteousness until there was a breaking of the outer shell. You see, that act of baptism by John was even humility, was it not? It was a breaking of the outer man. Because even though he was sinless, he still could hold on somehow in some mysterious way and resist what God was doing. And I don't understand that. I can't even explain it any better than I just gave you. So if you want a better explanation, you've got to go somewhere else. That's all I'm saying right now. So watch what happens. So suddenly, now watch what God does with this. This is kind of cool. Chapter 3, let me just look at it real quick. He says, when, verse 16, when he baptized Jesus, Jesus came up immediately out of the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, and a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Okay, so I've gone from this act of humility, letting John baptize me when I really know who I am, um, to all of a sudden this confirmation of the Father. Kind of a high moment, right? Kind of cool. So what immediately does the Spirit of God do? Oh, you're not done yet. Jesus in human flesh, you're not done yet. So notice what it says in chapter 4. He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Who led him there? Just say it out loud. Who led him there? Spirit led him there. And the purpose was what? To clearly be tempted. This wasn't going to be a nice palm desert getaway. You know, we're not going to the desert just to kind of hang out by the pool. You're going to experience the worst of the worst. And it's going to attack every dimension of your soulish man. Okay? It's going to try to pull that soulish man into this world. In other words, it's going to try to get you to fall. So what happens? The tempter, it says, uh, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Would you all agree the greatest understatement of Scripture? Right? I mean, I'm hungry now, right? I, I just had a little bite before I came. I'm hungry now. Afterwards, he was hungry, fasted 40 days and 40 nights. But he was also weakened. He was weakened in which man? Outermost man? You see? The body, right? How about the mind? You think the soulish man was affected? Mind, will, and emotions? I don't know about you, but whenever I fast, all I can think about are snicker bars. In fact, when I don't fast, I think about snicker bars. All right. So, so what's happening? You see, there's this tack going on this outer man and this soulish man in order to do what? To release this spirit man. To use the human sense of the word. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones that they become bread. Jesus answered said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He uses a word right there in verse 4. You see that word, every word? Just kind of circle that word, word, W-O-R-D, W-O-R-D. See it? Right next to that, this word, rima, R-H-E-M-A. He didn't say by every logos, L-O-G-O-S, he wasn't saying by everything that's in the Bible. He was saying by every word that's revealed. 
Okay, so what was Jesus doing? He was actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. And he's telling us here something about this. God, the Spirit, revealed to Jesus, the Son, in that context that this was applicable for that particular situation. So to take you back to where Nathan was a minute ago, sometimes the context doesn't matter if God's giving you a rima. But it doesn't mean you neglect the context and know what's the flow of the Scripture is. Both are important, right? We've got to function in both. We don't want to be, you know, Bible dumb. But we also don't want to be spirit dumb. Okay? You ladies hot back there? Fanning like, uh, looks like you just got off the rickshaw somewhere. I don't know. You're fanning like crazy back there. Um, Okay, so notice what it says. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, hmm, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear uh, up, uh, you up and, unless you dash your foot against a stone. Okay, so he's, he's taking us back again now. Now he's taking us to the Psalms, and he's showing us something. He's pulling it, and he's saying, God spoke. And then verse 7, if Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, I will, all of these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. You see, it was a direct attack on the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's a direct attack on everything that we think is important. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's everything that appeals to the soulish man. Everything. Everything about us wants those things. It's just, we don't want to admit it. I want to be popular, pride of life. See? I want what I want, lust of the flesh. I like what I see, lust of the eyes. Everything the soulish man. We will never, this side of glory, get away from that. We're going to fight it your whole life. The question is, how well will you manage it? And the only way you can manage it well is for, the outer, for that, that outer man to die so that the inner man can be released. So that when the temptation comes, when the tempter comes, you can say, it has been revealed to me that I will not live by bread alone, but by every revelation that proceeds from the mouth of God. And when God speaks, I will be powerful in that situation. One final scripture, then we're going to take a break. Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6. You know the spiritual warfare chapter well, I'm sure. Every time you get in trouble, you read it. I think it's got to, it'll get me out. It's my lucky rabbit's foot. You know, I never understood the lucky rabbit's foot. I mean, for the rabbit, it really wasn't lucky. I mean, the three-legged rabbit running around is going, you know, I don't get it. Okay, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse, um, let's, verse 12, and then I'm going to drop down real quick to verse 17, Okay. 
Uh, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against rulers and darkness in this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Okay? And then verse 17, it, it tells us to put on all this armor of God, but then it says this, and take up the helmet of your salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Rima of God. He used the word Rima there. In other words, in spiritual battles, you know, it works in Hollywood to quote scripture, the devil and, and you know, and werewolves and, you know, all those other people that do bad things to you at night. But it says you need the revealed word of God. It is the sword of the spirit. Amen. We got to get the outer man broke so we don't try to function in the soulish man so that we can release the spirit man. And now let's take a break. <laughs> 